Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And uh, we have been working through Romans 8 for a number of weeks. Uh, We've actually completed the first half of Romans chapter 8, which is verses 1 through 17. And uh, there is a break in the chapter at this point where Paul begins to take up some new themes. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 18 begins this second section of the chapter. And so this morning, I'm going to read for us, uh, beginning in verse 18 through to verse 25, and uh, then this morning, we're going to look at verses 18 to 22. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and if you're using one of the black Bibles that we provide for you uh, in the pew, you'll find our passage on page 944, page 944. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the glorious hope of the Gospel that You have given us in Christ. Lord, we pray that You would now open our minds to this great hope, and that our hearts would be filled with the hope of the Gospel. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, the Bible opens with these words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1-1 reminds us that creation has perhaps been and continues to be the most profound testament to the existence of God. Creation is shot through with design. To the smallest particles, to the vast expanses of the universe. And design requires a designer. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And yet at the same time, just a quick 
skim over the most recent news feed reveals that something has terribly gone wrong in this world. There is something terribly wrong with creation itself. With all its glory and intricate design, we know both by testimony and by experience that the world can be a very inhospitable place for mere mortals like you and me. So this last week we were reminded of the sinking of the Titanic, which took place on April 15, 1912. It was the largest ship afloat at the time. Many boasted that it was unsinkable until it hit an iceberg in the Atlantic Ocean and 1,500 of its passengers died. Of course, this week, news agencies were reporting throughout the week on the status of the Titan, a small submarine that was designed to carry a handful of billionaires over two miles below sea sea level to observe the wreckage of the Titanic. And now we know that the submarine imploded and all on board were killed. And the Titanic and the Titan, they make the news in part because both of these vessels were carrying some of the richest people in the world. But we realize that events like this take place all over the world all the time. So if you were to do a search on natural disasters in 2022, here's some of the headlines that you would uncover. One, Pakistan floods kill at least 1,739. Two, earthquake in Afghanistan kills at least 1,036. Three, floods in Nigeria kill at least 612. Four, South African flooding kills at least 461. Five, earthquake kills at least 334 in Indonesia. Six, tropical storm Megi kills at least 214 in the Philippines. Seven, floods kill at least 233 in Brazil. Eight, drought kills at least 200 in East Africa. Nine, flooding in India takes at least 192 lives. Ten, floods kill more than 182 in Afghanistan. That's just the first ten. And we've said nothing of the 700,000 people in the United States who die every year of heart disease. Or the 600,000 people in the United States who die every year of cancer. Or the 9 million people who die worldwide every year of hunger. Three million of them are children. And so the world is both magnificently beautiful and horrifyingly tragic. The world can offer us great delights and good pleasures and at the same time present us with crushing disappointments and sorrows. And so what are we to make of this? How are any of us, and especially how is the Christian to live in such a world? 
Well, Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, that in a world of suffering, Christians and creation are full of redemptive hope. In a world of suffering, Christians and creation are full of redemptive hope. Now what we're going to do is this morning we're going to focus on verses 18 to 22 and we are going to consider the hope of creation. And then next week, Lord willing, we will focus on verses 23 to 25 and we'll consider the hope of the children of God. The two are related and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But this morning the main focus will be the hope of creation. Now, as we consider this truth from our passage, I want us to consider three points in particular, and this will serve as our outline this morning. First, in verse 20, we'll see creation subjected to futility. Secondly, in verses 20 and 21, we'll see creation subjected in hope. And then third, in verses 19 to 22, we will see creation longs for the redemption of the sons of God. So first of all, we see in verse 20, creation is subjected to futility. Uh, Look there in verse 20, we read these words. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, if you look at these verses as a whole, you'll notice that creation, that word creation appears four times in verses 19 to 22. So you see it there in verse 19, creation Verse 20, creation. Verse 21, creation itself. Verse 22, the whole creation. So so you see Paul's focus here on the creation. And and what does Paul have in mind when he speaks of the creation? Uh, John Murray, in his commentary on uh, Romans, explains this well. He, He points out that, of course, God has created all things, right? Nothing exists without God creating it. But here Paul has something specific in mind when he speaks of creation. We know if when we read this word in the context here that Paul is not referring to angels, for example. Because angels, as Paul says here in the text in regards to creation, angels have not been subjected to futility. We also know Paul is not referring here when he speaks of creation to Satan and, its, and his demons. Because Satan and his demons do not, as Paul will go on here to say in the passage, long for the revelation of the sons of God. In similar fashion, we know that when Paul speaks of creation here, he's not speaking of non-Christians. Because non-Christians, they don't long for the revelation of the sons of God. In fact, Paul's not even speaking of Christians. Because... He will go on to draw a distinction in these verses between Christians and creation. And what we'll see is that Christians and creation long for the same thing, but Paul makes a distinction between that longing. So what does Paul have in mind when he speaks of creation here in these verses? Well, Murray says that Paul has in mind non-rational creation. Or as one author puts it, Paul has in mind the physical world of matter, plants, and animals. We might refer to it as the cosmos. And what Paul says here in regards to creation, the physical world of matter, plants, and animals, is that there was a time, he indicates here, when 
creation was not subjected to futility, but then it was subjected to futility. And when was this time? When was it that creation was subjected to futility? Well, of course, Paul has in mind here the fall. The fall of Adam and Eve. As I mentioned earlier, Genesis 1-1 begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of Genesis 1 gives a description of God's creation of the world. And after each day of creation, God pronounces over that which He has created, It is good. It is good. It is good. And in the end, He declares, It is very good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we read of Adam and Eve's rebel against God when they violate the one prohibition that God had placed in their lives. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, death entered into the world. And God's judgment, His curse fell upon humanity, but not only upon humanity, but upon His creation. Listen to God's pronouncement of judgment in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now Paul makes it very clear here. And he's, he's thinking from Genesis 1, Genesis 3, right? Paul makes it very clear here that this act of subjecting creation to futility was in fact an act of God's judgment. Notice what he says there in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Here it is, not willingly. In other words, creation did not choose futility. Creation, we could say it this way, did not choose to rebel against God. Man rebelled against God. And creation was afflicted with the collateral damage. And this was an act of God. Notice what Paul says. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. And who is it that subjected creation to futility. It was God. That's what is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. God declares, cursed is the ground, cursed is the earth because of you. So futility and decay and corruption and death are not a natural characteristic of the created order. In fact, it's just the opposite. We could say it's extremely unnatural. This is not the way God originally created things. Rather, they are the consequences of the curse and judgment of God in response to humanity's rebellion. So when this futility took place, this subjection to futility was the fall, who did it? It was God who cursed creation in response to man's rebellion. And then what is this curse? What's the nature of this curse? Well, notice there in verse 20, Paul says that creation was subjected to futility. And that word there, futility, actually uh, contains within it this idea 
of being without use or value, emptiness, futility, purposelessness. So creation was subjected to futility. It's actually the same word, this word futility here, is the same word that the author of Ecclesiastes uses again and again when he complains, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's the word being used here by the Apostle Paul. What does he mean by that? Some of you might remember the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004. On that day, there was an earthquake on the ocean floor that registered over 9, 9.1. And as a result, there was this uh, rupture that was created on the ocean floor that was 900 miles long. And when that, when that a rupture took place. There was a force of energy that then surged up the waters to the surface and created waves initially that were over a hundred feet tall. Scientists tell us that when those waves started moving across the ocean, they were moving at 500 miles an hour. And when they hit shore, it was absolute devastation. Towns and cities destroyed. 230,000 people killed in just a few moments. And you can imagine that the people who lived in those regions and towns around that area, when they heard of the devastation, when they heard the testimonies of the people speaking of what had happened, they heart, their hearts would have cried out, Why? Why? I mean, even the world as a whole, when they heard of what had happened, the, the cry of our hearts was, why? You see, there is a sense of futility, a sense of purposelessness to it all. When we think of the havoc that creation wreaks on itself and on humanity, this is part of the curse, the judgment of God on creation. Not only does Paul say here that creation, the nature of this curse is that creation has been subjected to futility, but notice also he speaks of it as bondage to corruption in verse 21. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. As we think about bondage to corruption, a number of authors have pointed to the idea here of the second law of thermodynamics, which is also known as entropy. And I'm, I'm no scientist, but scientists tell us that this principle is the idea that the general trend of the universe is towards disorder, decline, decay, death, disintegration. In this sense, the universe is in bondage. It is enslaved to corruption. That is, it is running down and it is running out. Scientists tell us that if the universe continues on its current course, it will eventually flame out. It is in bondage. It is enslaved to ongoing corruption and decay. Now, all of this may not seem very encouraging to you. And in many ways it's not. 
But it is true, isn't it? We witness it all around us. People try to deny it, they try to avoid it, but it's a reality. We live in a fallen world. It's broken, decaying. But there is a word of comfort as well in this truth. You see, it is true that the futility and bondage to corruption that this world experiences will eventually touch each one of our lives in one way or another. It could be in the form of a natural disaster. It could be in the form of sickness or disease. All of us, our bodies will eventually decay and give way to death. But here's the word of comfort. When futility and bondage to corruption befalls you, based on what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8, don't automatically assume that it's because of some particular sin that you've committed in your life. Or assume, well, I must not be doing life right, or this wouldn't be happening to me. Or I must not have enough faith, or I wouldn't be experiencing this particular difficulty or sorrow. Some people approach life that way, don't they? But notice that Paul acknowledges here that for himself as an apostle, for the Christians who are in Rome, and for all the children of God, we do in fact live in a fallen and broken world that is subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption. We can't escape it in this life. And our hope is not that somehow if we get everything right, if we read our Bible enough and we say our prayers just the right way and we serve enough people and we give enough money and, and we do everything just right, that we can avoid it all. That's not our hope. And if you live like that, you will compound suffering upon suffering, right? On the suffering that you already experience as a result of naturally living in a fallen world, you will heap upon that guilt and shame. Of course, there are some negative things we avoid in life as a result of living in obedience to God. But we cannot escape, finally, the corruption of this world. And our hope is not in this present world. Rather, as the Apostle Paul tells us here in our text, we have a future hope. A future hope, as Paul says in verse 18, that far surpasses any present sufferings or sorrows. And that leads us to our second point. Creation subjected in hope. Creation subjected in hope. Look there in verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is not just subjected to futility, but creation, God subjected creation to futility in hope. And what is this hope? Well, you see it there in verse 21, that creation will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So in other words, bondage will give way to freedom, corruption will give way to incorruption, futility will give way to glory. And what Paul has in mind here as he's speaking of this great hope 
is the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. This is a hope that did not originate with the Apostle Paul. This is a hope that it's not like the first time we ever hear of this hope is in Romans chapter 8. This is a hope that is spoken of throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. So, we could go to many places, but let me just point you to one place in the Old Testament Scriptures where this hope is particularly pronounced, and that is in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read a couple of passages here from Isaiah. If you want to turn there, you can. If you, if you don't, that's fine. Uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 and 18. Here, if you're using one of the black Bibles, it's on page 624. Here, the prophet Isaiah announces this great hope. The Lord says there, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mine. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So notice here, that, so, so we're wondering, where does Paul get this hope? Where is Paul getting this idea? What, what is Paul working from when he's talking about this hope? And Paul is working from Isaiah and the prophets of the Old Testament. He's thinking about passages like this. And here the Lord announces through the prophet Isaiah that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And he speaks of it as a new city, a new Jerusalem. And the Lord says that this new city will be so full of joy and so full of gladness that we will not even remember. We will forget the futility and the corruption of this present world. Now, Isaiah doesn't just speak about this in Isaiah chapter 65. The book of Isaiah is full of this hope. So listen to what the prophet Isaiah has to say about this new world in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. This is actually the Lord speaking through the prophet. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, if you know anything about the animal world, this, this stands out, right? Because you know that wolves devour lambs. Lepers feast on young goats. Lions lick their lips and pounce on fattened calves. But the Lord says here, they will dwell together. They will lie down and snuggle up with one another in an open field. And a young child, like so many of the young children that we have here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, a young child will lead them. Now think about that. Children won't fear wolves and leopards and lions Rather, wolves and leopards and lions will submit to them and follow them and they will lead them wherever they want to go. In other words, 
as the children of God, they will truly exercise dominion over creation. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. It's the same idea. I actually looked it up. Bears love to feed on domestic livestock, and their favorite livestock to feed on are sheep and cows. But here, the prophet Isaiah says that the bear will join the cow in grazing in the grass. And the lion, who is the king of the jungle, will eat straw like an ox. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Now notice notice what's being said here. Even the slithering, slimy serpent who caused all this mess in the garden, the one who causes us all to squirm a little bit, even he, the serpent, will be changed and transformed. He will be harmless. He will be innocent so that a child will play peekaboo with a cobra over his hole or den. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is the main point. These animals, the lion, the wolf, the leopard, the snake, the cobra, they will not hurt or destroy anywhere in all creation. That's the main point. No more futility. No more meaninglessness. No more bondage to corruption. And why? For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, every atom in all of God's glorious creation will pulsate with joy as a result of its new life under the reign of its sovereign king. This is the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And the Lord Jesus spoke of it many times in His ministry. In particular, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He's speaking to His disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, and you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That word there that Jesus uses, new world, carries with it the idea of renewal, rebirth, regeneration. It's actually only used one other time in Scripture. It's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, to speak of the new birth that takes place in an individual believer's life. When we trust in Christ, we are born again. We are given new life. We are regenerated. But here in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus doesn't speak of the new birth of a believer. He speaks of the new birth, the regeneration of all things, of the entire cosmos. The Apostle Peter picks up on this theme in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Peter declares to the audience there, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time, here it is, of the restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. 
Again, Peter speaks of this new heavens and new earth in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Shane read it for us this morning. Peter writes, since all these things, and he's referring to creation. Now listen to this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? What is Peter speaking of there? He's speaking of what Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 8. Bondage to corruption. This creation will dissolve. It will decay. It will give way. But then Peter goes on to say, but according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, is full of this hope of which Paul speaks. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, John the Apostle writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And so you get this language in Revelation 21 of a a new creation. There's a new heaven and a new earth. You get this language of a new city. There's a new Jerusalem. But you also, as John the Apostle goes on trying to describe what it is that he's witnessing, you also get this language of a new garden. In Revelation 22, verse 1, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so what, what, what John is doing here is he's, he's using this garden language to remind us of the Garden of Eden. It was a, there was a river, we learn in Genesis chapter 2, that ran through the Garden of Eden that gave life to the garden. And where do we find the tree of life in the Bible? It was in the Garden of Eden, right? And what John is telling us is that God is restoring creation to its original design. God is restoring creation to its original beauty and glory like the Garden of Eden. But it's even a greater glory Because, my friends, Eden only knew the perfection of God. But in the new garden, in the new Eden, all creation will witness and will be able to testify to the glorious, redemptive grace and power of God by which He redeems rebellious sinners and by which He restores all that that has been corrupted and broken by sin. The new garden will shine bright with the glory of God's redemptive grace and mercy in a way that the original garden never did. This is the Christian hope, my friends. And understand what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8 is that it's not just a hope for individual salvation, although it is that. But it is a cosmic hope. It is a hope that God will restore all of creation. 
Just as in Adam's fall, all of creation was affected, so in Christ's redemption, there will be a new and glorious transformation that will restore the entire universe. This is what it means that God has subjected creation to futility in hope. Third, creation longs for the redemption of the sons of God. So we've seen creation subjected to futility, creation subjected in hope, but then third, creation longs for the redemption of the sons of God. Look there in verses 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected in futility or to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So notice one of the things that Paul is doing here in this passage is he is personifying creation. That means that Paul is ascribing human thought and emotions and actions to creation, which is not human, right? So he's personifying creation. He's ascribing human thought, emotions, actions to creation, but creation is not human. Now, of course, this is common in literature. It's also common in the Old Testament scriptures. So, for example, in Psalm 97, verses 11 through 13, we read these words. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So there we see in Psalm 97 that creation is singing, creation is exalting, creation is rejoicing. But here in Romans chapter 8, notice creation is not singing, it's not exalting, it's not rejoicing. Rather, creation is waiting, it's longing. It's groaning. Verse 19, you see, for the creation waits with eager longing. Literally, that verse reads, for the eager expectation of creation waits. The Phillips translation actually translates this verse, the whole creation is on tiptoe. It's like it's straining its neck forward to see what is next. The message translation of the Bible translates this verse, the created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. And then Paul picks up this idea again in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. We have many pregnant women and newborn babies here at Crawford Avenue. We're blessed with many children. We know that childbirth, I don't know this as well as the women in our room, just want to be careful. Childbirth is difficult, it's painful, it's agonizing, but it is a pain that leads to joy. If you and I were to visit a hospital and through a door we were to hear a woman screaming or groaning, and we were in the burn unit, we would feel a certain emotion, right? 
grief, sadness. But if we were in a hospital and we heard on the other side of the door a woman screaming or groaning, but we knew she was giving birth, that would be a different emotion, wouldn't it? There might be sadness, but there would also be a sense of anticipation and a sense of, of, of joy. All pain does not result in joy, but there is some pain that results in joy. And the pain of childbirth results in joy. And Paul says here that the longing, the waiting, the groaning, the agony of creation is pregnant with joy because of what is going to be birthed to the glory of God. Now notice this, that the creation is longing, it's waiting, it's groaning, but, but notice specifically here as we think about this crea- creation longing and waiting and groaning, notice specifically what it's longing for. We shouldn't just assume that we know. We have to be careful in reading the text. Notice that first and foremost, creation is not longing for the restoration of creation. Creation is longing, rather, for the revelation and redemption of the sons of God. Do you see that in verse 19? For the creation waits with eager longing, here it is, for the sons of God. Now why is creation longing for the sons of God, for Christians, for the children of God to be revealed and redeemed and glorified? Notice verse 21, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So notice, notice sequentially what's happening here. Notice the order. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and then it will attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's not then that creation will be renewed And then the children of God will be renewed to fit creation. It's the opposite. The children of God will be renewed and redeemed and restored. And then creation will be renewed to fit and align with the redeemed and glorified children of God. Another way to say it is that we will not obtain creation's freedom and redemption, but creation will obtain our freedom and redemption. You see, it would not do for a redeemed children of God to dwell and live in a broken and unredeemed world that is full of suffering. Can you imagine the redeemed, glorified children of God living in a world of drought and famine and disease and cancer and tsunamis and mudslides and earthquakes? It will not do. So God will redeem His children and then He will restore creation to be a suitable and holy habitation for their joy. And there are so many practical applications to this truth. One we've already read of in Peter, right? If this is what's to come, oh, how we should not live holy lives in light of who we will be. And what we will know. Another application. You can endure suffering in this life. Because it will seem like nothing. 
when you encounter the glory that is to come. Here's another application. I came across this in a sermon that John Piper delivered on this passage. We've talked about this morning that our children, our, our church, by God's grace, has been blessed with many children. We also know that in our church we have parents who have either given birth or adopted children who have special needs. And with that, comes a certain burden and a certain amount of suffering and hardship. Listen to this very practical application from Pastor John Piper. He says, this, this is how he says, he speaks to the parent who has a child with special needs. Quote, your child will not be changed to fit the new glorified universe the new universe will be changed to fit the glory of your child. The designs of God are for a universe for His children. Your disabled child won't have to adapt anymore. His body will be totally redeemed and new, and everything in creation will be adapted to Him. And what Paul is saying here in our text is that creation longs and groans for that moment. Creation subjected to futility. Creation subjected in hope. Creation longs for the redemption of the sons of God. As many of you know, C.S. Lewis beautifully captures the renewal of creation in his classic work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Perhaps you've read the book before, or maybe you've seen the movie. The world of Narnia is a world that is under the rule of the wicked witch of the north. And as a result, as a result in the world of Narnia, do you remember? It's always winter, but never Christmas. It's always winter, but never spring. But then Aslan comes, right? Who is the Christ figure in this story. And when Aslan dies, and then he's resurrected to new life, what happens? The ice begins to thaw. The snow begins to melt. Flowers and trees in Narnia begin to bloom. The sky is bright and blue. The earth comes alive with life and beauty. What is Lewis depicting? Creation is being set free from futility and the bondage to corruption. Creation is being born again. And this, my friends, is the hope of which Paul speaks. It is the hope of creation. It is the hope of the gospel. When Christ died on the cross, He bore the penalty and curse for our sin and He bore the penalty and curse of creation. For all those who turn from their sins, the Lord Jesus promises the forgiveness of sins, and He promises eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth. In this sense, we can say, it's still winter, 
Creation has been subjected to futility. Creation is in bondage to corruption, but Christ has defeated sin. Listen, my friends, we could say it this way. The ice is thawing. The snow is melting as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. It is winter, but spring is coming. And this is the hope of creation. And it is the hope, it is the longing of the children of God. Let's pray. Father, in this life, we acknowledge that we confess, so we experience so much brokenness and sadness as a result of living in a fallen world. And yet, Lord, we are so grateful that we have not been left without hope. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised not only to redeem us and redeem our souls, but you have given us the hope that you will redeem all things, heaven and earth, all creation, for your glory. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who has not experienced this hope, who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus and is still under the curse and condemnation of sin. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would do a work in their lives and hearts now. And Lord, I pray that they would trust in the Lord Jesus and that they would hope in the promise of the gospel. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in Christ and who are children of God, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with this hope. And Lord, we do pray that as we await the day that is to come, that we would live holy lives, that we would endure hardship and faithfulness to you. And Lord, that we would look forward to that day with great anticipation and joy. So Lord, take the hope and the reality of the gospel now and apply it to our hearts as you see fit. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.